Let's ask the Lord's guidance before we get into his word in uh, John 4. Gracious Lord, I thank you for the grace that you pour out upon us. The grace that can make for a redeemer of all things bad and wrong and sinful in our lives and on this earth. Thank you that in you is our hope, in you is the light of this darkened world. And in you we praise and sing of your glory. Help our hearts to receive the fullness of who you are, to be changed by it, to be enlarged by it. I ask that you take this time today and um, guide it, control it, and apply your truth and your light uniquely in the heart uh, of each one of us here today. I ask this in the name of Christ, our Lord and our Savior, and I ask it for the sake of his kingdom within us. Amen. Uh, we're going to be uh, in John 4, and it's a place that we visited uh, on numerous occasions here in the Sunday morning um, chapel study. I'm just wanting to look at it in a little bit of a, a different light. Uh, we're looking at Christ, uh, the revolutionary. Uh, he came into this world to turn the existing order upside down and to turn mankind inside out and, and to upend our view of things, to upend the way in which we see and do things. And this picture that we see near the, the beginning of his ministry, you know, he never waded gradually into the deep waters. He just flung himself and everyone else out into them. Uh, he didn't just gradually acclimate people to the harsh realities of the spirit truth in the midst of a fallen world. He just was in people's faces with um, the stark differences between God and man, between truth and man's version of truth. And so this is one of those situations where he just, he just boldly went where no man, you know, where man feared to go. <laughs> he just didn't round the corners. And here in um, chapter 4 of John, we see that. And um, we'll be <clears throat> again with verse 4, where uh, it was important he needed to go to Samaria. And he came to a city of Samaria, which is called Sychar, near to the parcel of ground where Jacob's well was. Now, I want to just go into a little bit more detail here. As you all probably already know, Samaria, the, the land of the Samaritans, um, wedged between Jerusalem and um, the Sea of Galilee and Nazareth. And so in order to go from Jerusalem to the Galilean region, 
the Jews either had to pass through the countryside, the, the region of the Samaritans, or as most of them did, they went around. So they, they extended their walk by many miles because they, they would have had to have gone west about 30 miles toward the Jericho region, cross the Jordan River, and follow it north in what is now Jordan. It wasn't then, but it is now. Follow it north and then loop around once it got to the northern uh, side and, and, and come back toward Gal the Sea of Galilee. They probably extended their, their walk by a day uh, to do that. Now, the reasons uh, for this, this hatred of the Samaritans uh, go back all the way to about 900, 900 years earlier. Uh, where the kingdom, the, the 12 tribes split, sort of in a civil war. And ten, the 10 northern tribes split off from the two southern tribes. Now, the two southern tribes had as their capital Jerusalem. But then you had three quarters, more than three quarters, of the rest of the 12, of the 12 tribes um, in, a, in a nation unto themselves. It was a civil war of sorts. And Jeroboam is the person who's, who led this rebellion, this revolt. And so he established the northern kingdom, which was called Israel. And the two southern tribes were called Judah. And so the the capital of this northern sector, 80% of the tribes, was Samaria. Immediately, to differentiate himself from the southern two tribes, Jeroboam instituted calf worship, which went back to the Egyptian worship of golden calves. He immediately instituted that. And later it became the worship of Baal. And Elijah was a prophet to the northern uh, tribes. And remember when he killed the 400 prophets of Baal in 1 Kings 18? Uh, Jezebel was the one who instituted the worship of Baal, well, that entailed child sacrifice. And they have found um, hundreds of babies buried uh, with, um, you know, urns and things like that in the area around where uh, the, the, the center of Samaria uh, was and where the center of the Baal worship was. So this was why the fury of Elijah against these, these prophets who promoted and encouraged uh, child sacrifice. This was going on in the northern kingdom of Samaria. I mean, it wasn't called Samaria, but the capital. 
and it was a palatial area. It was absolutely um, a beautiful region. It was in the valley, but Samaria itself, the city of Samaria, was uh, on sort of a 300-foot-high sort of domed area. And there were palatial um, palaces and, and houses that surrounded the central governing uh, site. So it was, it was a, a, a marvelously beautiful place. It was known for its beauty. But there was war between Israel and Judah immediately. And for about 80 years, there was continuous war in 931 when they separated out, or approximately 931. The dates are a little, little fuzzy, but it was around 931 B.C. And then they had a period where there was a certain amount of civility between the two, uh, the two regions and of, of about 80 years. And then from there on, there were, there were outbreaks of war that happened. Now, <clears throat> Isaiah prophesied that this northern kingdom would be... Um, destroyed and never never to come back and about 300 200 years later not 300 200 years later that happened the Assyrian Empire came in and overran the northern ten tribes and uh, and, and this is in the region where where Nazareth is too that's not where it existed at the time of Christ, but that whole northern, uh, Nazareth was in the northern tribes. Galilee, can anything good come out of Galilee? That was coming out of this Assyrian, uh, this Samarian, Samaritan uh, region, but the Assyrians took over and, and Israel never came back as an entity. It completely dissolved. And um, so we have then here the, the Samaritan region essentially uh, intermarrying. And there, were, uh, there was just sort of a diluting down of the Jewish line. Now... 200 years, I mean, around between 5 and 600 B.C., closer to 600 B.C., um, the Babylonians uh, came in and, and overran the, uh, and took over uh, Israel, I mean Judah, the southern two tribes. <clears throat> so when they were coming, you know, and they had, they had moments of grandeur, um, the southern two tribes did when um, in the Maccabean era, uh, about 165 B.C. That's okay. <laughs> You'll probably have to hold it down to actually get the whole thing off. I have to hold it down for a while. Okay. That's okay. Um, you, had, uh, you had Judas Maccabeus, who was an amazing general and defeated with his, his 10,000 troops on three different occasions, a Roman army uh, coming against him of a, a close to 100,000, 80,000. And um, so there were glory days, but there was still this longing at the time of Christ 
for the, the, the Jews to come back together in, in their independent uh, uh, homeland. <clears throat> the remnant of this Sumerian culture then lived in that region wedged between Jerusalem and Nazareth, Jerusalem and the Sea of Galilee. And the remaining Jews, the Jews that had remained pure, had not intermarried, primarily of the southern region, could not stand the Sumerians, the Samaritans, could not stand them because of all their culture, because of their idolatry, because of their calf worship, because of the worship of Baal, <clears throat> because of child sacrifice. They were uh, immersed, their history was, in debauchery. Their history was Im immersed in all those things that uh, the world did, and even more, in fact, <clears throat> the capital city uh, of this region, uh, Samaria, was built on the blood of the poor. And their treatment of the poor in building these wonderful palaces and things of that sort that I described was more severe. Uh, uh, one one uh, commentator uh, wrote, uh, it would have made the Egyptians cringe. So, rightly so, the people of the South could not abide the behaviors and the lineage, the history of this region, and had them stamped currently as if they were the same. Whether they were or not, we don't know, and we assume they weren't. So here is Jesus early on in his ministry, making a pointed decision to go to Samaria, to walk straight through to Jacob's well, to meet with a woman that he knew was not only a Samaritan, she was a woman, and she was a woman with a bad reputation even in Samaria. The worst of the worst is where he went. Did you want to say something? They had, yes, they had some Jewish diluted blood in there, yes. No, because it had been so uh, polluted, the bloodline had. It was like half-breeds. You know, in our country, you know, uh, when the Indians and the whites married, they produced half-breeds, and that was worse than the white and the, the Indian marrying. It, the half-breed idea is something that we, no one seems to look fondly upon, and that's what they were. They were not part of Samaria. They were part of Judah. Yes, yes. So the, the, that historical revolt was still part of, I mean, it's like, you know, several years ago, in the 70s, when my brother got married, he lived in Memphis. 
that was in 1970-something. I don't remember, 79, probably. Um, no, it was earlier than that. It was before my children, so 70. Uh, he got married, and I went over there, and I, they had this real lavish uh, reception, uh, a bridal, I mean, a, the, the bride's shower, and, uh, and I was sitting there at this, this place, I can't remember where it was, probably a country club, it was being held, and, and I heard this lady, she was probably 79, 80, somewhere in there, and I heard her talking about, she said, you know, we should have won the war. And I'm thinking, well, what war did we lose? What did she mean we should have won the war? And I said, I'm listening. She said, you know, if we just had railroads, like the North had railroads, we would have won that war. <laughs> That's right. <laughs> we would have won. But that had how many, 150 years? Well, not too, uh, 100 years, over 100 years, she is fighting that war. And that's sort of what happened between the southern kingdom and the northern kingdom. They, well, they continued to fight the war, number one, for hundreds of years until uh, Assyria came in and, and overwhelmed them, and they no longer did. So their history was one of not just a moment of revolt, a, a period of a three-year, four-year civil war. It was a period of 200 years of fighting each other. Yes, exactly. Oh, oh, do. <laughs> now we're back here to America, okay. <laughs> okay, maybe I shouldn't have brought that up. I'm not sure. But the, the idea here is that it, it does get ingrained in us. And in even something that lasted for four years got ingrained in the South. They had lost. And in a sense, I think the southern two tribes probably felt like they had lost because 10 of them left. It, they were outnumbered 10 to 2. So there was an awful lot of emotional, psychological, um, hi, come on in. There was an awful lot of emotional and psychological stuff going on in the southern two tribes surrounding Jerusalem against the Sumerian arena. And, and part of that was that, that the bloodline had just been so polluted. And, and they were purist down here in the south, so to speak. So there was a hatred that the Jews had for the Samaritans. And they, they skirted, they wouldn't even drive through the countryside there. Wouldn't even, wouldn't even go there. Go around. <clears throat> and it was not the inconvenience of just a couple of hours of a detour like we have today. I mean, it, it took probably a day out of their journey from Jerusalem in the south to uh, the Sea of Galilee and Nazareth if they were journeying there. So we're in John 4, talking about the woman at the well and, and why it was such a radical thing for Jesus here to make a point of going straight through Samaria to the well of Jacob. Uh, and I think it speaks, um, just as an aside, turn to Luke 9, where
where we have hit this before too, but I think it just adds an exclamation point to what is going on here in Luke 9, uh, 51 um, through 56, essentially, or, or actually through, through um, 60. But in 51, uh, this is where Christ is, is setting his face to go to Jerusalem. And, uh, and for his death, and he has, um, he has um, not too far removed from that, fed the 5,000. So he is on the northern, the northern shore of the Sea of Galilee. So he's in that region of Bethsaida and Capernaum. And he then sends, in verse 52 of uh, chapter 9 of Luke, his messengers before his face, and, and this was particularly John and, and uh, James, to prepare the way for, of the communities that Christ was going to be coming into, to prepare them to receive him. And um, in verse 53, there was, um, well, in verse 52, in the middle of verse 52, they went and entered into a village of the Samaritans to make them ready for Jesus. And they did not receive him because it was as though he was going to go on to Jerusalem. I don't quite understand that. But his disciples were incensed. The word's not used here, but they're, they're, dis, they're wanting to destroy the city let you know that they were pretty, how they felt about this city, and that they were pretty incensed by it. And they asked uh, Jesus in the middle of verse 54, would you have us command fire to come down from heaven and consume them, even as Elijah did? You see, Elijah did that commanding of the fire to come down in this region. He killed the 400 prophets of Baal in this region. This is historical precedence. Christ, you want us to do it again. Why were they feeling? I think they were feeling that strongly because this was a Samaritan village. This was a village that had defiled everything holy about God. Not just this village, but this region. Everything holy about God. They had, as we've just said, they, they worshipped golden calf, they worshipped Baal, and they had child sacrifices. They had desecrated the name of God. And they were the people of God. Yes, these disciples didn't like them at all. They hated them, and they thought, okay, Elijah did this here. We can do this here. Maybe Jesus wants us to do this here. We now have the power because he gave it to us. You know, they're getting a little out of bounds here with their power, coloring outside the lines. But it was outside lines that had been colored in before by Elijah. And these people had made a reputation for themselves. And they had not made any effort to come back. They had just assimilated into the Assyrian Empire and the pagan cultures. So there was contempt and there was history and historical precedence for this contempt. There was reason for it because these people were 
defiling what was holy that had been given to them. And I think this is why their response was so profound here, so strong. And Jesus said, well, you don't know what manner of spirit you are of because I've come not to destroy, but to give life. That's who I am. So then over here, <laughs> he's in the face of that mindset. He is absolutely in the face of this historical context. And he goes right through Samaria to Jacob's well, and he speaks to this woman, a man to a woman in that culture, didn't do it. A Jew in Samaria, you didn't do it. And particularly a woman who had the kind of reputation she had, she was even ostracized in Samaria. How low can you get? The dogs, you know, Jews felt that people that were not of them were dogs. The Syrophoenician woman came, came out of the whole Sumerian region, though she wasn't a Samaritan. And, and the word dog was used in reference to those who were not of the Jewish cult, uh, people. So a dog in that context who was shunned by the dogs. That's whom Jesus went to. It is he that initiated the conversation. It is he that told her about something she needed. So you go on reading in John 4. And she asked a question in verse 9. The woman said, How is it that you, being a Jew, ask a drink of me, a woman, and a Samaritan? For the Jews have no dealings with Samaritans. Jesus said, If you knew the gift of God and who it is that says to you, Give me something to drink, you would have asked of him, and he would have given you a living water. And, of course, we've gone through this conversation. But... And, and you know, she's lived with five men, five husbands. And the man she's living with now is not her husband. So, I mean, this woman is the dregs of the coffee pot. And Christ has gone to her. He met her alone because no one else wanted to be around her. Okay, go on down. Um Verse 19, this, this, we have now the context of her, her, her comment to Christ. The woman said unto him, Sir, I perceive that you are a prophet. She understood prophets because God had sent prophets as much to the northern tribes as he did to the southern tribes. He sent Elijah and he sent many others, 12 or 13. Well, no, not that many, I'm sorry. There were 12 or 13 leaders. She said, Our fathers worshipped in this mountain. You don't know what they worshipped, or we sort of do. They worshipped in this mountain. <laughs> they worshipped a god, but it was Baal. It was the golden calf. It was anything other than uh, Elohim, 
And you say that in Jerusalem is the place where men ought to worship. Jesus said unto her, woman, believe me, and I'm not going to go into that. The hour is coming and now is uh, when you will worship the Father in spirit and in truth. The woman, verse 25, said unto him, I know that the Messiah comes. So they had enough of the Jewish blood in them to know that the prophets had prophesied. The prophets that had come to them had prophesied of the Messiah. So there was this mix. I know that the Messiah will come, which is called Christ. When he has come, he will tell us all things. So the first public declaration that Christ made of his messiahship is to this woman. This Samaritan outcast dregs of the society, even of the outcast society, is the one to whom he said, I am he. I that speak unto you am he. And it changed her life. And she went out to the community, the Samaritan community in which she lived, and brought people back. And in Acts, <clears throat> after Pentecost, you see Philip being sent to this region. And a great revival breaks out in Samaria, in this region, through the, te the preaching of Philip. I think the groundwork for that great harvest of souls through Philip came from the well of Jacob, came from what Christ did here and what the Samaritan woman discovered there and that which she proclaimed there. So <clears throat> where I'm going today with this is this radical nature of Christ. I find it amazing that he did this. What would be the equivalent today if Christ did this today? What would be the equivalent if he were here in America? Huh? Uh huh. Yeah, if he were here in America. Or, I mean, you can, you can, um, couch that over in the Middle East, but I think we need to just couch it here for a minute. What would be the equivalent? Huh? Go to San Francisco. <laughs> that, that would be one very viable option. We'd go to San Francisco. Yeah, yeah. Well, because there's, there's a large population of uh, people who've chosen a lifestyle that seems so in the face of holiness. Is that what you're talking about? Yeah. New Orleans. New Orleans. Yeah. Yes, New Orleans. Not to go and tell them to repent for the vengeance of the Lord is at hand. No to go to uh, San Francisco or New Orleans to speak to them of something they need. 
and speak to them in ways no one else speaks. Good examples, yes. Yes. Well, in, in, in many ways we are. And, and I think he would, he would not, and, and I'm picking up on what you said, I think it would not be on the steps so much as it would be going to a woman who was in great anguish and turmoil about what to do and speaking to her of a better way, of an answer. He, he wouldn't be proud. Yes. Well, and, and, you know, that she had such a radical change in her life would have been a witness to something extraordinary. And, and it, it, it plowed the field here for the seed to be sown and for a great harvest to happen at Pentecost. And, and, and I think, too, the way in which we are going, for instance, with such uh, vitriol um, against the Muslim community. I, I don't think he would do what we're doing. I mean, it would be like us going to the World Trade Center two blocks away from it to that it's not a mosque, but a, a prayer center, recreation center that's got so much controversy, and go in and say, talk to them and, and be loved to them and be, be, uh, be an expression of love and be an expression of truth, but not in, a, not in a confronting way. I mean, he did the opposite of what you and I will have a tendency to do. My knee-jerk reactions are almost always going to be coming out of myself and, and not out of the Spirit. And he don't, he, we don't know whom he has chosen for us to encounter, for us to speak to. And it will, he will always go against our mindset of what it's going to look like. It never is going to look like what we think it's going to look like. Yes. It's clear he had an appointment with this woman and that he presented his messiahship first verbally in Samaria. It is astonishing. He did choose her. He did choose Samaria. And the background that she pulled from, diluted and polluted though it was, was still some sense of God, some sense of the prophetic message. So the prophet's voices were not lost. I mean, it was interwoven into that pagan culture so there was this hybrid mix of, of um, falling away. And, of course, the southern two tribes didn't have too much to brag about either. I mean, they had major idolatry in their history as well. And that's why, you know, 100 years after the northern kingdom fell, the southern kingdom fell too. Uh, but that this prophetic voice was not lost even in the midst of the dark days of the northern kingdom. It wasn't lost. She still had the echoes of it and understood that a Messiah was prophesied. And, and the Jews in Jerusalem 
were not open to that. They didn't know of their need. They had been free all of their history, by the way. <laughs> no, never been a slave. Not even now. The Romans don't exist. <laughs> Oh, yeah, that's why I'm calling him a revolutionary, because this is what he did. And, and he was coming to Samaria to redeem it. He is the redeemer. And he went to the poorest of the poor, and he went to the, the deepest of the lost, the ones most outcast, most rejected, <laughs> most not in the mainstream at all, to redeem them. To say, if I can redeem them, I can redeem anything and anyone. I am redeeming Samaria. I am bringing Samaria back from the darkness. I can't redeem those who don't think they need redeeming, by the way. But I can redeem anything else and anyone else. So he was a revolutionary. And so it brings us up, do we just want to believe in this revolutionary or do we want to follow this revolutionary? Because, dear hearts, if we follow this revolutionary, our lives will look different than everybody else's. Our lives will look different than the world looks, than the Christian community looks. Can I go back to your thing? Yes. If we're running with the crowd of sentiment, we're probably not following Christ. If we're running with the crowd of sentiment, we're probably not following Christ. I'm talking about a Christian sentiment. We're probably not following Christ. You see, of the ten lepers that were healed, only one came back. He was a Samaritan, by the way. Um, you see... Over and over again, Christ calling the crowd and the masses down. Because what he's doing there is what God did with Gideon, who had 10,000, and God trimmed it down to 300. A ridiculous number for fighting the thousands and thousands that were coming against him. The hundreds fell away when Christ in John 6 said, Eat my flesh and drink my blood, and didn't explain that. And they said, this is a really hard statement. I think we'll go home. Still believing in him somehow, he turned to the disciples and said, well, you two go away. And Peter said, where will we go? You have the words of life. So it was, it, 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 he's calling out the remnant. It's not that Christ seeks to, he, he seeks to gather in as many as he can to be saved. But if the world is to be changed. And I'm not talking about necessarily the planet, but if our world is to be changed, the world about us is to be changed, it will not be changed by the masses, dear hearts. The masses of believers, it won't be changed. Because the masses of believers look strangely like the rest of the world. It will be changed by the remnant, by the people who choose not just to believe in the revolutionary, but to follow him. And that means that we have to take seriously the culture of our times, where we live, how even our church culture does things, and see how that comports with the life of Christ. And so getting back, Beth, to what you were saying, you're thinking about how would that look. 
Okay, let's bring it down not just to how it would look if Christ were here. He is here, by the way. Huh? Well, Christ is here is the thing. And absolutely, literally here in you and me. So he walks around on this planet in us. So what would he have us to do here? Literally. What view, what attitude, what action would he have you and me do? Yeah, yeah. And so, you know, I really think it's very, very urgent that you and I as Christians refine our thinking on because I know all in here have chosen to follow him but sometimes that wavers because we get comfortable it's easier to believe it's not as comfortable to follow so it may be important to revisit am I believing at this point in my life just believing and safe or do I really want to follow him and what will that look like? And I think the least that it will look like, Christ said in John 5, I can't do anything unless the Father gives it to me to do. What I see the Father do, I do. So it means that he was in prayer greatly about where the Father wanted him to go and who the Father wanted him to see and... and where, how he was to, to meet people. Perhaps the beginning is for us to realize that each day offers us the opportunity to meet a woman at the well, to see a short man in a sycamore tree, someone hiding in the shadows or in the crowd, someone that no one else notices or everyone else shuns. Now, that sounds pretty easy to do, but if there are people in your family that are shunning someone, bad-mouthing someone, then it's not so easy to go against that and go to that person anyway and love them. It, it, it sounds generically easy, but that's why he said, if you don't love me more than you love your mother and your father, your children, your brothers and sisters, you cannot be my disciple. Because sometimes, and he said, I, I came not to think, not that I've come to bring peace, I've come to bring a sword. To divide mother from daughter, father from son, brother from sister. What does he mean by that? He doesn't mean he came to bring violence, but he demands that we choose him if the choice is between him and our family and their views and how they do things that's what he's talking about that we have an allegiance to him more than we do to our lineage our heritage our family of origin or from our friends who love us and we want to be a part of that and we don't want to feel like the odd person out and we don't want to feel like we're bucking their system I mean, it gets down here to a place where it is a lot easier for us to believe in Jesus as our Savior and proclaim him to be our Lord but not follow him. 
but the world, our world, this community, this, this region, will not be changed by comfortable believers. It will not. If we want revival, if we want to see our culture begin to have light and life and change, it will only happen if the Lord has his remnant folk who say, I will follow you. you. You point me where you want me to go, and I'll go. And that generically sounds easy for everyone, but in real life, in the real world, it is not. He is revolutionary, and this revolutionary asked 12 men to follow him. And in that fellowship, a lot of the world got on board and followed. He asked that remnant thread to go with him to the end times, to be the voice and the light, and to step out from your culture and from your friends. You know, in, in, in this culture that we live in here in the Rockwall area, with as much money as there is, um, there are people that the moneyed class uh, might look down on, that the Lord might call you to be a friend <coughs> to. The Lord might call you to spend time with. There are some that have been hurt by somebody else. Some of your friends might have been hurt by someone, and the Lord may be calling you to go give love to the one who hurt them, who was mean to them. This will take us into places we are uncomfortable with. But if we want revival, if we want the world to be changed, it will not happen with believers. It will only happen with the remnant who follows. Uh, and those who follow a revolutionary are revolutionaries. They're seen as radical. Fanatical, maybe. But let's not be fanatics in doctrine because we have plenty of those in America today. Let's be fanatics in love. Fanatics in grace. Fanatics in that sacrificial pouring out of our lives so that people might see him and know him. That's the revolutionary that issued the summons to follow. I want us to turn to Luke 10. In verse 25, I'm just going to introduce this and we can work with this more next time. Verse 25 of chapter 10 of Luke, a lawyer stood up to Jesus and said, Master, what shall I do to inherit eternal life? And he said unto him, What's written in the law? How do you read it? And he answered and he said, You shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, and with all your strength, and with all your mind. Christ was probing this young man's, how he understood what the law was about, and understood what something of the Spirit was about. 
So he's, he gave this uh, verse out of Deuteronomy. You shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, and with all your strength, and with all your mind, and your neighbor as yourself. And Jesus said unto him, You've answered right. You do this, and you will live. Then he said, But who is my neighbor? And Jesus answered him, said, A certain man went down from Jerusalem to Jericho and fell among thieves, which stripped him of his raiment and wounded him and departed, leaving him half dead. And by chance there came down a certain priest, Levitical priest, uh, that way. And when he saw him, he passed by on the other side. He, he played it safe. He walked on the edge of the road. He skirted around the, that which was fearsome or uh, troubling, scary, uncertain. There might be the robbers might still be there. People that did this to him might be around. Or maybe he just didn't want to get bothered. Likewise, a Levite. Okay, so this is a certain priest must be some other sort of priest. Okay, a, a Levite. He was a priest. Maybe the Levite was just of the tribe of Levi. I'm not sure what he's talking about here as I look at it. When he was at the place, came and looked on him and passed by on the other side. But a certain Samaritan, as he journeyed, came where he was, and when he saw him, he had compassion on him, and he went to him, bound up the wounds, poured in oil and wine, and set him on his own beast, brought him to an inn, and took care of him. And on the next day, when he departed, he took out two pence and gave them to the host and said, Take care of him, and whatsoever you spend more, when I come again, I will repay you. When now of, which now of these three do you think was neighbor unto him that fell among the thieves? And he said, He that showed mercy on him. Then Jesus said unto him, Go and do likewise. Show mercy on the downtrodden. Show mercy on the outcast. Show mercy on the ones that the world avoids. Go and do likewise. That is the commission of the revolutionary. It's to have compassion on those in need. To have compassion on those who are lost in the crowd. Who are shunned by the crowd. Do you find it interesting? I'm sure you do that he chose a Samaritan to give an example here of compassion and of righteousness. Samaritan. That was not an accident. That was an intentional point here to one who was in a Jewish position of prominence, a lawyer in the community. He spoke to him of the outcast people, people who squandered their God. And yet the Redeemer was coming here to redeem the Samaritans, to redeem what had been lost, what had been squandered, what had been reviled, what had been in debauchery, to redeem. 
the revolutionary sees the worst of the worst in us all and loves us anyway and reaches down and pulls us out. And not just pulls us out, but redeems us. The woman who had an issue of blood, he affirmed her in public. The woman who had been an outcast for 12 years, he affirmed her in public. He validated her in public so she could re-enter society and not be deemed as unclean and an outcast anymore. That's his message. I would like for you to meditate on, study this Samaritan story here. I mean, we've known it since childhood, but I want you to study it in light of what is he saying here? What are the dimensions and dynamics of what he's saying here in light of the historical context, in light of our lives? Uh, what is he saying here? And I'd like for us to discuss that. Um, for our soul here, I'm not going to let it go. <laughs> he has gone to meddling, and I am not going to let us off the hook here. Uh, I, I think that when we get done with this, the revolutionary, we may be wrung out and <laughs> dragged up on the shore. I'm not sure, but I do think that we need to take the blinders off our eyes in this comfortable community in which we live, in this comfortable nation in which we live, which we have everything. Even the poorest of us has so much more than the poor of the rest of the world. And we get caught up in things that are irrelevant. Irrelevant. Irrelevant to the spirit. Uh, irrelevant to God. He came to redeem. He can't redeem that which doesn't need redeeming. He can't redeem the gold. But he can redeem the wood and the stubble and the copper. The stuff that people cast aside because it is not a treasure. And that stuff is other people and how we see them. And the revolutionary asks us to have new eyes, a new heart, and feet willing to go where no one else goes. Let's pray. Father, thank you for confronting us with our own mindset and paradigm, our own resistance to a revolutionary. But help us to be somehow lured by the life of Christ, lured to a new place, to a new adventure, <coughs> in which lives are noticed that have been lost and outcast and lives are redeemed. Help us to want to be following uh, our Redeemer. We pray this in the name of Christ, our Lord, our Savior, the revolutionary of our souls and the Redeemer of our lives. Amen.